Hello and welcome to the Fortune and Freedom podcast. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode. It's a question that I've seen posed on GB News by Thomas Piketty, the French economist, and even in the Ingold We Trust report, but I'm yet to hear a satisfactory answer. The question is, why can't central bankers just buy all of the debt and write it off? I'm joined by John Butler, an expert in monetary history, currency resets, gold, cryptocurrencies, all of the sorts of things that you need to understand in order to answer the key question of why can't central bankers just buy all the debt? But before we get into actually answering the question, John, let's sort of discuss the allure of this idea, why it's being raised in so many places and what it really promises. Well, think about you know, where we are today in a world of zero or even slightly negative interest rates. I mean, if you're issuing debt and not even paying interest on it, I mean, in a certain sense, it's almost as if the debt doesn't exist. You can just roll it over as it comes due, keep interest rates negative, and it's really just an accounting convention at that point, rather than anything that is you know, taking money from one place and, and sending it to another uh, place in the form of any actual form of interest payment. And so you, you have this, uh, this bizarre context, which of course then leads to this kind of head scratching where some quite serious economists who have quite serious posts um, in you know institutions around the world start thinking well maybe that maybe we can just retire the debt right why, why play this accounting charade when we're not paying interest on debt anyway and they point to what what were at least fairly low rates of inflation notwithstanding zero interest rates and they sort of extrapolate that wow if we just zero out the debt um we can still remain in this uh, essentially low zero interest rate uh, sorry inflation environment one of the strange aspects of this is that the distinction between debt on the one hand and money on the other has sort of become blurred historically speaking money was something that had value gold or you know, money was something that was connected to gold then gold was removed and we were left with this idea of something that is connected to nothing. And the next step beyond that was the way the money supply is managed is by buying and selling government debt, mostly government debt. So central banks buy and sell that debt. This distinction, this blurring distinction between money and debt has led some to claim that if the government didn't borrow money, there would be no money in the economy to function because central banks couldn't perform that, uh, that key role of, of managing the money supply. So can you get it, or can you explain that distinction or the lack of distinction between government debt and money and how it makes possible this idea that the central bank can just buy everything? Well, absolutely. I, I, one of the things that academia is really good at is, is conjuring up ex post facto justifications for all manner of policies that you know, serve the interests of those in power at any given point in time. And, and that, that's kind of how we've ended up in this place. Uh, that, that is, th there have been innumerable decisions over the past century and, and, and there are monetary cycles that occurred even you know, before that historically, but there have been innumerable events that have changed the fundamental nature of money, right? Gold and silver used to be actual money that actually changed hands. Then they became more just collateral for banknotes that circulated instead, and, but nevertheless were backed by those reserves. Then those uh, institutions, the banks primarily, were increasingly fractionally reserved on that gold or silver collateral. 
then you got into a situation where there was a, a complete nationalization of money, where banks no longer issued their own banknotes, but they were issued by central banks, such as the Federal Reserve, Bank of England, and so on. Uh, actually, the, 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 the Königsbank of Sweden, the, the Swedish central bank is the oldest of all. In any event, we've ended up in a place now where, as you say, money, it's, it's, not, it's actually not backed by nothing. It is backed by debt, as you describe. And, and, and I mean, and that came about through a series of steps. But what that means is that the word money, it's not really quite the same thing. And the definition has changed in a subtle way. Now, normally there are three aspects of money that are cited in academia, but there's actually a fourth that they've left out entirely now. And I'll get to that in a moment. The, the three that are widely talked about is the conventional wisdom is that money is a store of value, a medium of exchange, and a unit of account. But there's a fourth function of money that's been quietly dropped uh, through the decades as we've gone through this process. Money is also a final form of settlement that extinguishes any and all debt associated with a transaction. And that's why, of course, when gold and silver were actual money, they were able to do that because they can't represent debt, right? That they're inanimate objects, they're rocks. And today you simply can't do that. That is the distinction between government debt and money becomes blurred because in a way they're the same thing. And indeed in the repo market, they're exactly the same thing. You borrow against government debt to generate cash, which is then used for whatever purpose. And, and this is also how the Euro dollar system effectually, uh, effectively functions with one additional element, which is arguably infinite leverage based on simply how much risk leveraged players in that system are willing to take. That is how much leverage are you willing to uh, get on a repo backed transaction? You're gonna leverage it up 10 times, 20 times, 30 times. I believe Lehman Brothers was leveraged roughly 30 times when they ran into trouble. Uh, so anyway, uh, you're absolutely right. It's very difficult to have conversations about this topic nowadays because academics, especially when they're talking to uh, people like you and me, who have a, a sense of history and perspective in these matters, you, you can't even agree terms anymore. <laughs> One of the interesting things that you've raised there, and let's not go down the euro dollar rabbit hole, but okay. the way that central banks operate is, is that they buy government debt usually. And, and this exchanges money for government debt. So money is injected into the economy, into the banking system, and it takes government debt out. One of the points you've just made, which I think is absolutely central to all of this, is that the distinction between a government bond, what the central bank is buying, and money, what it's injecting into the economy, is not so clear anymore, especially given the fact that you can exchange government bonds for money incredibly easily and cheaply using what's called the repo market. Let's not dig into what repos are. The point being that this distinction between what is money and government bonds is very blurred and they're almost the same thing. Why then does it matter if a central bank buys government debt, thereby injecting money into the, the banking system and removing a government bond? Well, it, in a way it doesn't, and yet in a very real practical way it does. Now, theoretically it doesn't, because as Milton Friedman and others argued, as long as the monetary authority remains independent of the fiscal authority, then they will ma maintain uh, an interest rate that uh, arguably maintains uh, economic balance and stability and, and prevents dangerous leverage or other forms of imbalances from building up, and the economy can tick away on a sound monetary foundation. 
yeah, okay, on, on paper, sure, that, that, that could work fine. In practice, though, and, and indeed, even Friedman himself kind of admitted this, especially later in his life, in practice, when central banks come under pressure to help out governments that have ended up in a debt pickle of some sort, be it to finance a war, to finance a welfare state, to bail out a financial system, whatever it might be, the central bank always gives in. Always. I mean, and so you end up getting this conflation of monetary and fiscal policy. And of course, fiscal policy is financed with government debt and monetary policy is the, is, is the issuing of money against that government debt. But when the two agencies involved are joined at the hip with a, with a, with a shared agenda, then there's no check on the system anymore. And, and again, it leads us right back to where this conversation began. At that point, it, it, it's actually honest to start asking the question, why not just retire the debt? Because if indeed interest rates are zero and blah, 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 as discussed earlier, they're, they're, at that point, it's only a semantic accounting convention and discussion that you're having. That's exactly where I was hoping to go next. But before we do, one of the interesting messages and facts to point out is the extent to which central banks have been buying, not just government bonds, but just about anything they can get their hands on at this point. So this discussion is not so academic. So I, I don't, I'm sorry to put you on the spot, but can you give us a bit of a summary of what, what the central banks have been up to, what they've been buying? Well, many years ago, the Bank of Japan decided that they needed to extend the range of collateral that they would hold against the issuance of money uh, in order to achieve you know, their targets for you know, money supply, growth, inflation, whatever it was. Um, and, the, and these things are increasingly arbitrary, it seems. So they, they started down that road a long time ago. More recently, the ECB has become very aggressive in buying up all manner of securities, including uh, uh, corporate bonds. Uh, and I believe in some cases, things that don't even really qualify as investment grade. And, and the US Federal Reserve for many years has bought mortgages, mortgage-backed securities, uh, in, in addition to treasuries. So central banks have, I mean, major central banks uh, do have a history of, of expanding the range of collateral that they will buy uh, and that generally is linked to quantitative easing policies. That is, they simply need to have a certain quantity of new debt being added to their balance sheets on a regular basis in order to be able to create as much money as they claim to need to create in order to achieve uh, some you know, price stability target to fight deflation, to shore up their financial system, you know, whatever, whatever reason they give. So that's the road we've been on for a long time. An important part of the process that I think people need to understand here is that when central banks make a profit from all these things that they're buying, when they're getting paid interest by the government, that interest then gets returned back to the same government that paid it, which is what makes this whole, this whole idea of central banks just buying all the debt so viable. It's sort of like the government buying its own debt back again, only a little bit indirectly via the central bank. So can you explain, I think each central bank does it a little bit differently, the mechanics of how central banks actually remit their, their earnings, their profits back to governments. Yes, the, I'll, I'll generalize as best I can. So uh, governments issue debt. Now in a normal environment, there's at least a positive interest rate of some sort on that debt, however low. And the central banks purchase that debt and issue money against it. So the central banks are receiving the interest payments on that debt, but the money they've issued to buy it pays no interest. And so central banks earn an income, and that income is traditionally known as seniorage income. That seniorage income is, is positive in a positive interest rate environment. And generally, uh, normally on an annual basis, 
the central bank of that profit, that seniorage income profit, then gets remitted back to the very government that issued the debt in the first place. So it is a bit of a monetary merry-go-round, but the idea is, of course, that even though the central bank is nominally independent, uh, nevertheless, right, they should not be allowed to make their own independent profit, as it were. It's not meant to be a profit-generating institution. So, so to, the, to the extent they do make a profit, it just goes right back to the government that issued the debt in the first place. All of this is making it sound like it's a very viable idea for central banks to just buy, let's say, for example, all the government debt, and thereby extinguish this entire problem of high debt-to-GDP ratios for, for sovereign debt, and to, to pay it you know, all the interest that the government is paying on its debt to the central bank, which then just pays it back to the government. Uh, it sounds like a great solution. So what's wrong with it? Well, again, according to the so-called MMT crowd, that is modern monetary theory, there's nothing wrong with it at all. In fact, it's eminently desirable. That is, why not have a cleaner, more straightforward system where there's really no interest to be paid on government debt at all? In other words, this, this somewhat arbitrary distinction nowadays uh, in a debt-backed monetary system between the debt and between the money, they just say, well, let, let's not worry about it, right? I mean, let's just have the government issue the money itself. And the central bank can administer that. Okay, fine, you can still have a central bank, but let's stop the charade, uh, the, the MMT crowd will say. Let's just end the charade uh, and be open about it, that the government is effectively printing money to finance its spending, and the central bank is merely facilitating that the, the movement of that money through the financial system and you know then further out to the broader economy so in a way they're saying let's just call a spade a spade and in a way they have a point a very good point yeah i i agree that they have a good point the part that that is a problem with all of this is once you start to think about the incentives down the line what happens when governments can issue the currency, whether it's through sleight of hand via the central bank or in a more direct way as the MMT crowd say, what goes wrong when effectively politicians realize that the debt doesn't matter? Well, again, it, it's another step on this or another yeah, move down this slippery slope that we've been on for some time. You're moving yet one further form of theoretical constraint on the fiscal authority to basically print for whatever reason is deemed politically desirable. And you, you therefore make it that much easier and straightforward to, to inflate, which is really just to take resources from one part of the economy and siphon them off to another. You make it that much easier to do. And so you make it only that much easier for rent-seeking activities, for politically organized groups, whoever they might be, to extract resources from the productive economy more generally. Um, so it, it's, it's just a further step on the road that we're already on. And again, that's the key point in my mind, right? A lot of this is semantics and a lot of it's arbitrary. And the reason why is because we have come so far. We already have an, a largely, if not completely, untethered monetary system where the very definition of money and what money's ultimate purpose is, is to extinguish debt not to facilitate its creation. The two are not the same thing. Uh, you know, you could have asked JP Morgan a century ago, you know, uh, gold is money, everything else is credit. Um, he, 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 that's what he was saying. Where is this road leading to though? You say it's, it's just another step. Uh, I'm curious about where, you know, where the consequences are. Um, well, there are consequences. 
yeah, there are consequences. Look, there is no free lunch in economics. And indeed, I sometimes refer to the MMT crowd as the free lunch school. Uh, but, but if you take a look at um, other economic schools, such as the uh, Austrian economic school, of which Hayek was a proponent. Now, Hayek wrote a book called The Road to Serfdom. And I kind of described this road that we're on today as the road to monetary serfdom. Now, his, his book, The Road to Serfdom, looked at a, a, a number of ways in which a liberal free market uh, economy can gradually drift in a socialist direction and ultimately end up completely socialist. In fact, that's what the book was written for, right? To warn against that. If you focus on the monetary aspect of it, that's exactly what's going on. The financial system has been in many countries now, de facto nationalized. I, I mean, officially, maybe not, but the ability of the financial system to actually operate in a way where they make their own decisions, they make their own mistakes, they 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 you know they'll they'll suffer uh, from the consequences of those mistakes. If they make good decisions, they'll profit. I mean that that just doesn't really happen anymore. It, it, the financial system's been effectively monetized, and this idea that the central bank is simply going to extinguish start extinguishing debt. And you're going to have a complete conflation of the fiscal and the monetary authority. That's that kind of makes de facto uh, de, de jure what's kind of already happened de facto. The central bank and even the broader commercial banking system, they're kind of operating like public utilities that may be nominally private in certain aspects, but the fact is that they're, they're effectively government-run. Uh, utilities when you look behind the curtain of regulations and how they actually operate. One of the best ways to think about all of this is to think like a German. Uh, the Germans, when they agreed to join the European Central Bank and the Euro, they made it a condition that what is currently happening effectively cannot happen. They, they required under the European laws and legal treaties that govern the ECB that the European Central Bank cannot finance governments even though that's really what's going on right now. Why did they insist on that? Why did they insist that this solution of central banks just buying all the government debt cannot happen legally? There, there was a big fight before the Euro was even launched between those who believed that the Euro would be a very binding constraint on fiscal profligacy on the part of governments and then those who actually thought that the euro would facilitate fiscal profligacy on the part of governments. And, and indeed, this is why Germany is so up in arms today, at least a certain element of, of, of Germany is, because they sadly, you know, they, they went into this. They went into EMU hoping for monetary stability and fiscal restraint, and they're not getting it. And, and the reason why is because the ECB has clearly, clearly been helping out the more indebted governments uh, within the euro area. And th there's this principle of proportionality uh, in the ECB charter, that is, to the extent that they are buying government debt in order to issue money, as per our earlier discussion, that must be done on a proportional basis. That is, you cannot be disproportionately buying Italian debt vis-a-vis -vis German debt or Spanish debt vis-a-vis -vis, you know, Dutch debt or whatever it is. That proportionality by any reasonable objective measure has been severely violated over the past decade. I mean, we're not even close. And, th and, th and that's why there have been a series of court cases in Germany challenging the ECB's actions and the Bundesbank's participation in carrying out those actions as a member of the Euro system. 
and, and this is not going to go away because the ECBs, uh, they, they, they claim that what they're doing, in fact, does fall within their charter. Uh, and, the, and these Germans bringing the court cases claim that it doesn't. And, and the German Constitutional Court has been sort of trying to fudge this one, um, trying not to come down with a black and white ruling, uh, giving the ECB time to explain itself. It's 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 one of those issues though that doesn't go away. But de facto, what is happening is the ECB is financing those governments. It is violating the ECB charter, in my opinion. I think it's fairly it's fairly objectively clear cut. But it's not clear how this issue is going to be resolved. What is it that the Germans were afraid of though when they demanded that the ECB would be restrained in financing? Well, pre pre precisely this, because effectively then it's a subsidy for profligate governments, right? And German, the whole point of EMU from the German perspective was to prevent governments from being profligate. And yet now they've ended up in a system where, where they are de facto subsidizing profligate governments via the ECB. And also, of course, to some extent, the direct uh, bailouts and guarantees that have been given from time to time to Greece, Portugal, Spain, and so on, to try to help themselves dig them, you know, dig, dig themselves out of the holes that they got in uh, following the financial crisis of 2008. But if the, the government debt doesn't matter because the central bank can just buy it all, then what's wrong with a profligate government? Well, because, because of course, this is sort of what you know, Germans have experienced historically, right? The Ger Germans are terrified that they're going to get back into a situation where the central bank runs amok and just prints money ad nauseum in order to meet whatever obligations are coming due on the part of the government or anyone else. And of, of course, following World War I, that was the reparations that had to be paid to, to France, Belgium, the United Kingdom, and so on. Um, and and, and uh, it ended up destroying the German economy in the process. And, and, and you know, nobody wants to go down that road again because that leads to a very dark place. I think that's getting at the heart of the issue. And I think it's getting at the heart of what I'm trying to drive at here, which is that having it, it sounds like a great idea to have your government you know in a position where it can spend as much money as it wants just by creating that money but it's actually not such a good idea no. historically speaking it's a very bad idea because you can't trust politicians with that power the idea of a central bank being independent from the government sounds like an academic theoretical you know i know ivory tower concept that you know the, the government and the central bank should be separate so that inflation can be managed and so on and so forth. But I think that's that's a real red herring. I think it's purely about the fact that politicians cannot be trusted with the power to print money, which means if it happens in a de facto way by having central bankers give up their independence and say, if we don't save the government, it's going to go bust and that will be even worse, then all of a sudden we're in a situation where politicians are going to realize Hey, if the debt doesn't matter because the, the central bank will just print enough money to finance whatever we want to do, then there's no limit anymore. And so I think people need to think about what happens in a world where governments no longer have any sort of fiscal constraints. They can spend as much as they want. They can borrow as much as they want. They can come up with any harebrained scheme they like. And I think that's the road we're headed towards. Do you agree with that? Well, I, I think we're already on that road. I just think that we're accelerating our, our you know, sort of course along it and and this is where i mean look it, it it's just it just becomes a tragedy of the commons at that point right everyone's going to compete for who can just carry the most votes to spend the most amount of money which is effectively buying votes at that point right and that that's a that leads to a very unstable political system right when everyone's just grabbing for what they can grab for with no real sense of constraint or unity of purpose and and 
I mean, obviously, uh, COVID has has enabled governments to get you know even more aggressive than they already were. Um, so, of course, you know, if you declare war on someone, you can you usually spend you know as much as you want. If you declare war on a disease, you, you, it seems now you can basically spend as much as you want. You know, who knows what they're going to declare war on next? Um, but this look, this always ends badly. There is no free lunch in economics. There's a reason why uh, there is has traditionally been. A, a sense of restraint, both in terms of monetary policy and how that's conducted and physical policy and how that's conducted. And yet you look around the world today and the restraint is just less and less and less. Every time a crisis comes along, there's, there's less restraint in the wake of that crisis. And history tells you very clearly that this ends badly. Eventually, you're going to have some sort of monetary restructuring, some sort of monetary reform, some sort of monetary reset. Exactly what it will look like this time, I don't know, but there is no way we can continue down this road as we are without that eventually occurring and being extremely disruptive to the economy. John Butler, thanks for reminding us of all of the hard-earned lessons that we seem to have forgotten and reminding us of where it leads. And thanks very much for joining us at home as well. I hope you enjoyed this one.